Hey folks, it's Doug Thornell and welcome to uh, another episode of The Electables. I've got my producer, Michael Peliquin, on the line. Michael, how you doing? Oh, hanging in there today. Uh, heading to the beach this weekend, so looking forward to that, but yeah, hanging in there. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm surviving, man. I, I, I think every day is just a... You know, you're just looking, you're thinking to yourself, that's some shit, you know? Like, that to me is what I, I think about. Like, I think I've, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, our, our guest who's going to be coming on, uh, we're, I'm, we're actually working on a race together in, in the next week. And so we're, you know, I'm sort of up up to my eyeballs in uh, campaigns for the next uh, eight days, uh, two primaries in New York happening. Um, so that's taken up a lot of my time. And, um, and, um, you know, just uh, trying to figure out how I can, you know, do some good in the world, I guess. Um, so we are lucky to have with us my friend uh, and one of the top pollsters in politics, not just the Democratic Party, but in politics and not just po- politics, also uh, corporate uh, branding as well. And that's Cornell Belcher, who is the president of Brilliant Corners Research and Strategies. Uh, Cornell has published a book, uh, A Black Man in the White House. He's a contributor to M- NBC and, uh, and MSNBC. Um, he was the only uh, he was the only African American to lead the polling division of the DNC uh, under uh, my former boss, Governor Dean. Um, he has worked for the DSCC, uh, Emily's List, uh, and uh, both. Uh, President Obama uh, campaigns as one of the key pollsters, among uh, many other things that he's done, along with a lot of work in uh, corporate America and with progressive groups, and uh, really been really is an expert in um, not just uh, uh, you know uh, general market polling, but also uh, young voters and people of color. you know, he's one of he's 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 been on the vanguard there of figuring out how um, organizations can uh, develop messaging and um, uh, and and turn out um, uh, very important uh, people of color, younger voters, um, and so uh, he's also um, a uh, terrible fantasy football player. Uh, I should just say that, but uh, he's in he he and I have been in a league for about fifteen. 10, 10 or 12 years, but uh, Cornell, welcome to the show, my friend. <laughs> I had to get the fantasy football thing in. <laughs> I think I have at least one championship from, from our league. I do, too. <laughs> I do, too. I Like 10 years ago. <laughs> um, how you doing, man? How, how, how are you holding up? Uh you know, as as the theme song from Good Times goes, I, I'm scratching and surviving, hanging in the child line, brother. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, well, ain't look, ain't we lucky we got him though, right? Ain't we lucky we got him? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but by the way, I, your 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 listeners now understand that we're old because we're now yes. doing the theme song from Good Times. Oh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We are old. Um, okay, so um, I'd love to start off with uh, um, asking the the question of our of, of our guests. How did you get started in in 
polling uh, and political polling. Can you take us through the journey that led you to where you are today? You mean the mistake, the mistake that I made? <laughs> yes, in my ma- life? Ma- yes, yes. Can you take us through that big mistake that you made? <laughs> well, for- <laughs> uh, you know, it it is it, it is a it's not necessarily a linear journey. And thanks for the question, but it's not necessarily a linear journey. But it, you know, I was I grew up as um, I grew up on coast in coastal Virginia, uh, and what's um, t- known as Tidewater now they call it Hampton Roads for some reason. But I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, and um, and and my both my parents, my mom and dad, were from coastal Carolina, so I spent a lot of time in the summers in the, in, in the Carolinas. Um, so I'm, I'm a child of the South. Although it's funny because they keep trying to move Virginia out of the South. It's funny. Doug, when when, uh, <laughs> when when Governor Wilder was elected, all of a sudden Virginia wasn't a southern state anymore. Uh, right, <laughs> right, right, man. I I I'll tell you, I it it's got to be a very good reason for me to go to Virginia. There's got to be a really good reason. No offense, my friend, but get me to cross that border. Whew, it's got to be a good reason. <laughs> well, yeah, well. Virginia is a great state, and Virginia's for lovers, man. That's that's our that's our motto. <laughs> uh, but but chock full of great history there in the Old Dominion. I'm surprised because one of the things we always had to do as uh, as growing up there was, you know, you always take these in elementary school. You always take these um, field trips, but in Virginia, uh, you always had to go to, to Williamsburg, right? Um, oh yeah, uh, historic Williamsburg, and you always had to go to Jamestown. Every year we went to Jamestown. And what's funny is nowhere in that conversation about Jamestown and nowhere in that conversation about Williamsburg, at least when I was in school, was the connection with slavery. <laughs> oh, no, it just was like this. It never even happened. You know, it just you go to historic Williamsburg and it's as if that never even happened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they're, they're getting better about it. They were certainly when I was in elementary school. And, and the whole idea of that, you know, which was brought light by this, what, the 1619 project or uh, 16, um, what is it, 16, what's the New York Times project, 16, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're terrible, but going, we keep... love that project, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, we're, um, we're the first place six, where, It's where, the 1619 yeah, 1619 19 19. project. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I had it right. Uh, I drink a lot, so my memory fades. But then again, you know, the first slaves into into Virginia. Um, none of that was part of that conversation anyway. But but anyway, so I'm a child of the South. But what was fascinating to me, and I grew up sort of north of the port city, so a lot of diversity. So I grew up in a working class neighborhood. Um, uh, my my father was a cement finisher. My my mom was a factory worker. So, but I we never really wanted for anything. But it was a working class mixed neighborhood. And back there, you know, Doug, we it was a time when when kids actually played baseball, and you know, and black kids played baseball. Uh, <laughs> and <Right>. we always <laughs> played baseball. <laughs> we always played baseball during the summer, and we played with white kids and, and a big Filipino population down there as well, and, and African American kids. And then we'd go back to some of our friends' houses. And some of our friends had a Confederate flag in that in the freaking house, and I was always sort of fascinated. Sort of, what is that all about? You know, here we are, uh, you know, playing together, being friends together, um, 
but you have a Confederate flag at your house. Like, you know, what what's going on there? Um, so right. I've always been sort of fascinated with with sort of cultural and political behavior. Um, even from even sort of from from young people, sort of why are why do people behave culturally and politically the way they behave? Like sort of why is it that that I that that we can play baseball together, but you literally had a symbol of of, of white nationalism uh, in your home? Um, yeah. So I've always been fascinated with political behavior, why people behave, and and, and sort of growing up, you know, reading uh, W. B. Du Bois. Uh, and understanding for for him his social the social science social sciences was going to be his way about bringing about change to the world and and bringing about sort of justice and and equity and shining a light on inequality uh, and and for me I was fascinated by that because it sort of connected um, activism with with science and so I've always been sort of a bit a bit of a dork in that way. <laughs> and well, you know, when I graduated um, from school, I, you know, it was no question I was going to come to Washington because if you want to be in national politics, you come to Washington. Like if you want to be uh, in the theater, you go to New York, and you want to be in motion pictures, you go to Hollywood. Um, and 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 I always was fascinated with Washington D.C. because you know, field trips here, I was I was always taken by how many. And this might sound weird, Doug, but by how many just good-looking, well-dressed black people were all over the city? In D.C.? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yep. was like, whatever's going on in Washington, D.C., I want to be a part of that. <laughs> um, so I came to D.C., you know, at a time, and I actually came to D.C. just as um, Clinton uh, was becoming president. Um and it was a lot of energy, although it was economic downtime. So, you know, I, I waited tables and, and and interned like a lot of young people until I finally got myself a internship at Greenberg Research. Was and that at, at that time Stan, who was a godfather in the polling industry, um, you know, one of the one of the giants in the polling industry. Uh, I was lucky to get myself an internship at Greenberg Research at the time when he was Stan was, was Clinton's pollster. And and from there, I just sort of never looked back from my internship, uh, you know, and went on to, to, to work for Diane Feldman and learned a lot about um, uh, urban voters and polling in urban areas. One of the one of the first races that I that I that I worked on with Diane was you'll be you ready for this, Doug. It was Marion Barry's uh, redemption reelection. Uh, at- oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> mayor for life. Right, the the election that many people say, well, Marin Barry cannot be elected mayor again ever. Um, but they didn't understand, and this is sort of part and parcel of, of why I'm in politics. For those people, and and, and for those people to understand what Marion Barry meant to Ward Seven and Eight in Washington D.C. and for for our, our listeners, Ward Seven and Eight are the historic uh, districts on, on, in the South. Of south, uh, you know, southeast Washington D.C. across the Anacostia River, which is a real sort of important uh, economic as well as, to a certain extent, increasingly a racial divide in this 
in a city where, you know, more seven and eight Southeast has been historically the, uh, the blackest part of the, the District of Columbia. And, and also the sort of where you see the greatest um, inequality uh, here in Southeast. But they didn't understand what, uh, that, that a character like Marion Barry with these ideals of redemption and fighting for the people um, could change the voting patterns in this, in this city and how voters in Ward 7 and 8 would increase their turnout and how he, in fact, could become president again. And for me, that was a that was a that was a lesson learned early on that I would unfold further up down and further on in my life because since that point, I've 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 always been a, tried to be about increasing voice, you know, bringing more people into the conversation, uh, taking marginal voices. How can we get more? How can we get the voices at the margins uh, at the center of the conversation? And you fast forward that to. To, to sort of my work in life, whether it be for Governor Dean and the 50 State Strategy. The 50 State Strategy was really about sort of us competing more places, um, putting more resources in more places, bringing more people into the process, um, trying to expand the, the the playing field, and and that was successful. And 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 I think and I was a part of that. And if you look at the Obama campaign, look what what turned me on from day one about. And Senator Obama, that was that Senator Obama talked about building a movement. Um, and he, it wasn't just I'm going to build a campaign, but let's build a movement. And you know, Doug, for 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 especially people sort of of color coming out of the South, the movements are aren't just about politics; they are spiritual. Um, and movements are bigger than than politics. Movements are cultural. They're they're political, but they're also cultural. They, they're social impact. But civil rights was a movement. You know, the women's suffrage was a movement. So he was talking about building something larger and, again, bringing more, more voices in. I remember one of the first uh, sort of sit-down meetings with, with then-Senator Obama and a small group of us in, in D.C. was he talked about sort of building this movement and expanding the electorate and changing the face of the electorate, like, if, if 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 we have any chance of of winning the primary, nonetheless, the general, we've got to bring more people into the process. We've got to make the electorate look more like uh, how the, how the face of America looks now, and 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 that was you know that was right up that was right up my alley, and and that's sort of been my my life's work is is actually trying to bring more voices to the table. So I gave you a very long winding answer to a very short question, and I apologize. <laughs> no, man, that that was uh, no, that that was I mean, that's, you, you know, all of us have these real fascinating journeys. And that one, you know, it, it, it's, you mentioned I, I actually didn't know you do. You did uh, work for Marion Barry. I, I have always thought about putting together a, a political counterpart to the 30 for 30 ESPN series. And I always thought that an episode on Marion Barry would be um, incredible, particularly the ca this campaign you're talking about, you know, how he became mayor again after, you know, everything he went through. Um, and uh, Marion Barry had a really just a fascinating political career. You know, he is, his initial victory, his initial win, and I'm sure you know, you know all this, but he was carried by white voters um, in part uh, um, when he first won. Um, and then, you know, uh, he was probably one of the, um, uh, you know, the most effective users of patronage and not in a bad way. I mean, he he 
like he he understood that you've got to take care of your people, get them jobs. He was really on the forefront of put giving young kids jobs during the summer. Um, and um, so, you know, look, we can, uh, you know, he wasn't a perfect man, obviously, uh, but he was an exceptional politician. Um, and uh, I just think it would be so fascinating to do an, uh, just an hour long, two hour long episode on his on his political career. Um, I think that's right. I think that's right. But one, one further thing before before we leave that space, because I also think it's important. So sort of the broader conversation about sort of who I think who we both are. Like and the kids, the kids get lost on sort of your Marion Barry as as the, you know the bad side. But but Marion Barry, look, there is a middle class. There's a black middle class in Washington D.C., Prince George's County, and this surrounding area that is that is as as robust and economically upwardly mobile as any black middle class anywhere in the in the country. And you know why that yeah. is? That has to do connect the dots back to Marion Barry. Connect the dots back to Marion Barry using and this is and by the way, this, I, black people are the only people who 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 get sort of uh bothered by the idea of using political power to help take care of your constituency. Every other group in America uses their political power to take care of their, their constituency. But when black people do it, it's a problem. No. Marion Barry gave you know Marion Barry you know gave good city jobs <laughs> to, to people of color in a way that it hadn't been done before, and it helped build a middle class in Washington D.C. that was that that is that is that is second to none, and we shouldn't be ashamed of that because 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 we're all descendants of that, and and he and he and Maynard Jackson in 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 Atlanta, right? They used their they used their political power to help build a middle class and an upwardly an upper mobile group of African Americans. In, in these two cities, in these two cities that rival that they're second to none in the country, and that's because of black political power and, and patronage, and no one should be ashamed of that. They were doing in fact what they were supposed to be, in fact what they're supposed to be doing. They're using politics to empower people, and yeah, that's politics one hundred one. Yeah, I mean, look, you you take any urban politics course in college. And you go date back to the earliest parts of this country, and that is a, a function of how political, particularly machine politi- politics, was run in urban areas before black people were in power. Um, this was something that, you know, giving, pa- you know, patronage, that term, giving, you know, sort of empowering folks in your community was stuff that all ethnic groups in different parts of this country did um, for years. Uh, it just happened. So, in, in, and I, I think you're right. Look, I think, you know, um, I think Mayor Barry um, and, and, and some of the sort of some of the early mayors, um, Harold Washington, you know, um, Maynard Jackson, you know, these folks, you know, they were at the, you know, they were, you know, they were pioneers um, and uh, they, you know, they understood um you know, I think they understood this one of the central tenets of politics, which is you can't forget the people who voted you into power, right? Um, so, hey, um, so before we dive into some polls and stuff, I just want to get your thoughts on something. I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, you and I have had probably, you know, a lot of conversations about diversity within the industry you and I work uh, within the Democratic Party. And, you know, the odd thing is, is if you go on many campaigns 
it's not as if there aren't black people on campaigns, right? You have tons of black people on campaigns in different roles. A lot of organizers, you have a lot of people doing political uh, outreach. Um, you, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know, you have, there's a lot of African-Americans in politics, whether that's on presidential campaigns, local races, congressional races, right? What seems to happen is that there, they, that they, they are, that we are stunted at the point in time in which we're trying to enter fields where you have real, you can earn significant amounts of money, but also have real strategic control over the direction of campaigns in the party. Right. And I, and I, and I, my, the way I equate that is how it is basically the NFL. Like in the NFL, you have a bunch of, you have a league that is 65, 70% black. Right. But one, I think, black general manager, um, just a handful of black coaches, and only one, and, I, and, and no black owners. Right. You've got a huge number of players. Yet, when it comes to sort of being uh, being at the forefront of sort of sort of directing the strategic part of the league, you know, the general managers, the head coaches, even the the DCs and the OCs, like they don't, you know, black people just, you know, don't have not been given those opportunities. A little bit better on the coordinator side of things, but I was thinking about that, and it just it 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 was so eerily similar to to sort of how it is in um in democratic politics these days in terms of who is at the top of these of a lot of these political consulting firms and where is all the money going etc and so i just am i off the mark here what do you think well doug you're what you're doing is poking me with a stick uh (laughs) (laughs) because look this is something that i've been very sort of vocal about um and much to my uh, in, in ways that has not helped me professionally, been very vocal about is look, there is there is institutional racism in the progressive community, um, and we shouldn't pretend that progressive that the progressive community is immune from the same sort of institutional racism that we see in uh, in all parts of American society. Um, and look, it is it is unbelievable that the party that is so in a, in a, that is so um, dependent on the, the the participation of black and brown people has so few black and brown people truly empowered now what what do I mean by that now I, I learned from 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 the lawyers is, is talking about affirmative action it's not even about the hire so much. It's about the spend, right? Follow the dollars. It's about who has budgetary authority. And there are very few people of color within any of these democratic organizations. And don't even get me started on the super PACs, uh, the real big super PACs, the ones that, that, have, all, that have more money actually than, the, than, than, than what you would in the DNC. You know, how many, how many people of color, how many black people have budgetary authority? How many black people can say, you know what, we need a voter registration effort in South Carolina, so here is $5 million to do that in South Carolina and North Carolina. 
I have budgetary authority, I'm writing that check, right? An affirmative action audit of the DSC, the DCCC, Emily's List, um, all the all the big organizations, Priorities USA, all the big organizations, the progressive organizations who spend the money, an affirmative action audit of those organizations would shame, would, would, should shame the, should shame them to death, because they're because yes, and, and again, to your point, you can find some 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 brown faces in the hire, but around the decision making table and especially around the budgetary authority table, you find very few people of color. And it is about sort of primary, it is about primarily to me about power. Because in the end, this is, look, because in the end, even within the, within the progressive community, progressive circles, um, there is power concedes nothing. And, and, and here's the problem for, for progressives and, and, and Democrats, I think, that's growing, is that you're increasingly dependent on to your earlier point, turning out and engaging people of color. And it's increasingly becoming harder to engage them through conventional methods. So you're increasingly depending on the engagement and uh, people of color. And, but yet your, your, your operations and the people who are in charge of that and who have creative control of that are increasingly disconnected from 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 the ba from the base of the party from the people you in fact are dependent on, and it and it and it's absolutely a competitive issue. Uh, diversity within the progressive community for me isn't just a a moral imperative because it is that, but it's also a a competitive imperative because we're because you're increasingly depending on the, on a diverse marketplace. To, to move your product and to position to position your brand. Only in politics do you see such. Look, it, I think even corporate America is doing a better job when they say, "Look, the, the the marketplace is going more diverse. We've got to bring more diverse voices to the table to help us compete in these diverse marketplaces." In politics, you still have you have a very very diverse marketplace, but show me where most of the money is being spent, and show me who's spending most of that money. And it sure as hell doesn't look like that diverse marketplace. And so, yes, right. they, they've got to be called out on it. I'm, I'm someone who's, who's argued we need an affirmative action pro program within the, within the Democratic Party. Because if they won't, because, look, it's nice to sort of us talk about, well, let's have them do the right thing. But, Doug, how many conversations have we had about, you know, we, we just they, they, they got to do the right thing. And they don't do the right thing. They concede nothing without force, and this has been an argument. Look, the Congressional Black Caucus beats up on, beats up on the, the establishment almost every cycle, and you know it, Doug. You've seen it. You've been a part of those conversations. Why aren't there more people of color uh, in in positions of power at the DCCC? Why are why, you know why aren't there more uh, big consulting contracts going to minority firms at the DCCC, the DSCC, and all these these big organizations? It's the same damn fight we have every cycle. Yeah, it is, and it's it's amazing that I, I I I wonder how different the landscape looks between today and fifteen twenty years ago. I mean, I I I, I 
it's marginally better, maybe, but not, I mean, maybe, I mean, but if you think about it, I mean, 15 years ago when I, or 15, 20 years ago when I was getting started in this business, um, and certainly in the 2000s, right? Like there were, at, at that point in time, there were, um, you know, uh, only a couple African-American pollsters that I, that I knew and was aware of. And um, that was, you know, you and uh, and Ron Lester, um, who I've worked with, worked both, I've worked with both of you on races. Um, and I think about today and I, I don't know, I, I guess I struggle to, fi- are, are there, you know, have we tripled the size? I mean, are there, how much progress have we made in terms of just, you know, creating the next Cornell Belcher, Belchers in the last 15 years? Well, I know. I mean, back then, I mean, there were no, back then I did not know any um, black people who were media consultants, who were the people who were making the ads. I didn't know any of them. Um since then, I when I was at the DNC in 2016, um, and before that, I've worked with a number of African American-owned consulting firms. Burrell, you, um, you know, I've worked with them out of Chicago. They're fantastic. Um, but if you look at, you know, most of the big media consulting firms, they don't have. They're not. I. There's just not many African Americans who are in partner positions at these firms. And so, uh, you know, that's why I ask. If you think about where we are today, and if you think about where we were 15 years ago, is the landscape at all any better? I mean, yes, we elected Barack Obama, so there are definitely things about what has occurred over the last 15, 20 years. But just operationally and and from a business standpoint inside the Progressive Party, I don't know. I don't. I really don't know. I think we've made some progress in terms of diversity in 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 Senate offices and. Um, certainly sort of electing people of color to the house and more and, and, you know, made gains there. But, you know, like eight, six years ago, there were no African-American chiefs of staff in the Senate. I mean, that's unbelievable to me, you know, um, I think we've made prog, we've made some progress there, but. But it goes back to the- look. I think this actually, I, I actually think this goes back and is connected to where we started this conversation with Harold Washington and Maynard Jackson and, and Marion Barry. They were catalysts um, for change. And look, I think if, if we had this conversation with, with Donna Brazil and Mignon Moore, I think they would mm-hmm. talk about, I think they would talk about Chairman Brown. Yeah. And, and also talk about, um, how Jesse Jackson's run for president and how his success changed the Democratic Party. Because Jesse was able to leverage and and open up the party in the process. I mean, a lot of this sort of the conversation, and you know this well, a lot of the conversation sort of the uproar about superdelegates and all this sort of stuff over the last couple of years, understand that was a part of bringing more people of diversity and and having them have some power in the side of the party once upon a time. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. But, right. So, so, so Jesse's run was a callous and he put, and he used his, he used the, his, the political force that he had 
to open up the DNC and, and make some and make about and make some and make some changes happen uh, and and, and, ex, and expand voice. And I think people also forget people also are quick to forget forget about that. Um, yep. But right now we need we we do need a catalyst for change in these positions who in fact will empower um, who will empower people of color, not be ashamed that power empower people of color. Because look, it is what we should be we should be less ashamed about empowering people of color than than we are if we look at the to your point the heads of all these big organizations and who the contracting goes to the, the party ought to be more ashamed we should be ashamed by that because it is almost exclusively white and and damn near exclusively white male right right the 84 Jackson race, we could spend a whole episode on that. That's another one that I would love to do a 30 for 30 on. Uh, because not just, I mean, you know, there, there's, you know, in the 88 race too was, you know, obviously as well. But um, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, the, uh, the, the defund the police um motto that were that is out there um you know it's obviously a movement among some um and what it's calling for uh in terms of um you know scrutinizing police budgets making sure that you know that um uh in some cases potentially uh reallocating funds to other other parts of the government those are all things that i i you know i i i think are are very you know very important for us to discuss and have merit and we should and we should have that conversation as a political strategist though the term defund the police does worry me a little bit and um because i think it can be misinterpreted by not just white voters but black voters as well um and uh i you know i i I saw, you know, I, I, here, here's my belief. When, when, when Republicans want to do something, they figure out the branding around it first and then the policy. Um, they figure out the messaging that's going to move the most amount of most voters. Um, I worry in this instance that is not what happened. And, um, and, I, and, I, and so I just wanted to get your thoughts. There was an ABC Ipsos poll that came out recently that showed um, – you know, almost two thirds of people oppose defund. You know, the defund the police movement. Um, but just give me, as a pollster, as a political strategist, give me your thoughts on sort of that term. Okay, I have to be careful here because because I don't want to offend people. Um, which, you know, when has that ever stopped you, Cornell? <laughs> um. When when you lay out what defund the police, sort of what your what your action items are behind defund the police, um, I think they make. Look, I, I I think most people are will fall into agreement with that, but it's it's really tough because because words matter, language really really matters, and to your point, Republicans have have always been better at that. They understand how important language language is. Uh, you know, academics have written, you know, tons of books, you know, from Lykoff, et cetera, about sort of the importance of language. Progressives seem to never understand the importance of freaking language <laughs> to winning the battle. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. And look, 
the, the ideals behind defund the police are solid policies. But the caption and the language of defunding the police is an absolute political loser. And it, and it is basic, one, it's politics 101, Doug, that, 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 that you operate under all the time. And it is simply this. If I'm explaining in politics, you're I'm losing. losing. Losing, right. right. You're absolutely losing. And so the fight, and, and so and the, and, and the purity test of, of, of so many people on the progressive side over this, over this language is mind-boggling to me. It is right. not the right language. It is absolutely, like your point, two-thirds of people in IPSO, ABC polls, you know, aren't for defund the police. And by the way, it's common sense. And by the way, you know, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and a five-year-old segment of African-American voters in middle America aren't for defunding the police. But then if you talk about sort of what that means, so the concept of that, what that means, there are, there's certainly uh, sound policies that, that, that make a lot of sense, sort of the idea of reforming the police and rethinking about policing and, and what safety means. But, but my God, we progressives, can we've got to get better at, at language. And I'm sorry, but this language is an absolute loser. And I know some people will be, be defended by that because I see all their, their stuff on social media and how how they're defending the, the, the language of defund the police and, and this and that. But how about this? How about this crazy idea? How about us starting off from a position where, where, where we don't dig ourselves in a hole with our language? We've got all this wind at our back. We've got, we've got all of a sudden you know, the majority of white people realize, hey, wait a minute, there is racism in right. America. Black Lives Matter. I mean, if you think about the if you think about that term, right? You know, it was controversial. I think a couple of years ago, but now it's like I think where we are in the debate, and you know, maybe this is what the defund the peace police pe- uh, folks will will push back on and say, well, Black Lives Matter that lo- that slogan was controversial to the general public two or three years ago, and now it's being embraced by people. Um, I think it's also a you know, it's hard it's a hard thing for people to say to to say that. Black lives don't matter, right? Like I think just the I actually think it's 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 very good messaging um, for what it's provocative, but that's fine. It is in the sense that for white people to say that it would took you know it took a while for a lot of white people to get comfortable saying Black Lives Matter. Now you're seeing a whole host of organizations and companies um, getting there. I guess the question is is what's that? Yeah. Right. That's right. I, I guess the question is, is would that, you know, I, I think, though, that is I think that is different than um, I think that term um, is different than the defund the police um, uh, term, which, as both you and I have said, we 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 agree with the, the tenets of, you know, what folks want to do in terms of reorienting funds, reimagining the police department, reforming it. Getting rid of, I mean, look, I think you got to get rid of qualified immunity, chokehold. You got to do a much better job of of recruiting black cadets to act to uh, the police force. There's a ton of things that um, you know I that I think are are very are, are needed and need to happen now. I I think it's just a question of how you package it, right? Because ultimately, this stuff has to get pop. It has to get public support, and um, and and candidates have to be able to run on it, and 
as that's a political reality that you and I always have to deal with. Um, and so, and it's a reality that 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 makes it possible. If a Democrat can't run in a swing district on defund the police, and the Republicans will attack that Democrat in swing districts on defund the police, so it puts us at a strategic advantage. And by the way, if we lose the House of Representatives, God help us. If Republicans take back the House, God help us on on passing any real substantive uh, policy proposals around. Uh, around the things that we've been ta- we've been talking about, so so why shoot ourselves in the foot, right? It's, uh, it, look, I get yeah. it, but from a from, yep. from a political strategic standpoint, it, it, it's a it's a it's a liability that that it's it, it's a force error that we don't need. Right, right. Um, it's like Republicans running on privatizing Medicare. You know, it's like. They've got, you know, it's not something that it, it's, they, it's not in the sense that they would, you know, they don't, they, they need to, they're, they're stuck having or privatizing social security. Yeah. They think that there's something that they, that they, you know, that they want to push there, but they're stuck always having to explain it. You know, they're constantly on the defense there. Um, uh, okay, so real quick, can you just give us a sense of where you think this race is today? I mean, if you look at some of the polls that have come out, the presidential race, um, you know, it looks like, you know, Biden, you know, has anywhere between an eight to 12 point lead nationally. And then we're seeing some really um, uh, promising polls uh, in states. Uh, we're seeing some very competitive polls in states that Biden probably you wouldn't have expected to be competitive in. So I'm just, you know, give, give, me, your, give me your thoughts. Uh, well, one, it is, the, the, I think the dynamics of this race are still unfolding. Uh, frankly, the campaigns aren't even out full, sort of in full throttle in campaigns. Uh, so I think it's, it's early, and I think the, the, the dynamics that will determine this race are still, quite frankly, unfolding. That said, um, Trump faces um, an uphill battle. He, he faces headwinds, the likes of which I, it, you can't, I, there's, no, there's not another sort of incumbent for president, I think, has faced these sort of headwinds in, in the last two decades. I think you've got to go back to perhaps Carter. Um, and those headwinds are different. But look, he is someone who I argued he's a president by accident anyway. He's a, he, Look, our, he's a president with less than a plurality. Um, and he's a president who didn't win a majority in most of these battleground states. Look, he, he didn't win a majority in Michigan. He didn't win a majority in Pennsylvania. He didn't win a majority uh, in Wisconsin. Um, he didn't win what, you know, his, his percentage, his winning percentage in Florida was Mitt Romney's losing percentage in Florida. Um, so there are some things here that were that are kind of fluky uh, and and accidental. He's never had the support of a majority of Americans. The majority of Americans have not approved of of his job. Even in a time of crisis, when when you see Americans typically rally around the president, you didn't have the same rally effect around Trump uh, that that you've seen historically for presidents, whether they're Democrat or Republican. He is someone who is. Who is as unfavorable as anyone we've ever we've had in modern times at, at the top of the ticket, and 
he's someone who's whose governing has in fact not expanded the the, the Republican tent. Uh, anything it is is in fact track the Republican tent. You know, Democrats got and and Doug, I think this is something that's that's lost on people. At last count, last last count I, I saw, 2018, uh, over nine million more people voted Democrat than Republican in 2018. Over yeah. nine million. I. Um, yeah. And you are in right now. Democrats are winning white college voters built on the strength of of of, of white college women, and it is worth noting for our audience. That, that as brilliant as as Obama was, we didn't win white college voters. <laughs> uh, and Hillary Clinton didn't win white college voters in the exit polling and the exit polling either. All of a sudden white college voters are breaking are breaking Democrats. I think that is potentially a, a realignment of the parties, the, the likes of which we haven't seen since since sixty four, if white college voters are breaking for Democrats in in, 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 in consecutive elections. By better than three or four points, that's a big that's a big deal, uh, and that isn't. And I would like to say that's because Democrats have been so brilliant, and these white college voters have fallen in love with Democrats. But Doug, you and I both know that's just not true. They are reacting <laughs> primarily to their to, to to Donald Trump, and especially you know better educated women are repulsed by this guy, and they are right. repulsed by what they see representing a Republican Party right now. So I think, I think, and you look at the polls in, in Michigan, and you look at the polls in Pennsylvania, and it looks like the blue wall is back up. And you look at, to your point, just, you know, there's polling out that has Biden within one or two points with basically a toss-up in Arkansas. I know, I, I saw that one today. today. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the playing field, so the ability for Democrats to put more states and places in play are, I think, is critical. Look, one of the things that, that David Pluff said going into election night 2008 was, we're not going to be sitting around for the results of one state to come in to determine the president. And that's because we, we expand, we put more states into play. And I think if, if, if Democrats play their cards right this time around, I think it's the same. I think we have a 2008 brewing where Democrats were competitive in one place is like we won Indiana in 2008, and that's just crazy to think about right now. Uh, yeah, that we won Indiana. It's yeah. But the but the problem is, Doug is apparently, we, you know, the 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 Trump campaign is sitting on 250 million dollars, and and the Biden campaign and, and DNC is sitting on what a little over 100 million. Um, well, they had a really good May. Uh, I think uh, Biden and the DNC. I think they raised about eighty million dollars in in May. So um, they've got a you know they obviously had a lot of catch up to do because Trump wasn't as you know I mean Trump wasn't running against anyone. He had an unfettered field to raise money. Uh, Biden had to deal with the primary. But it, recently, I, from what I can tell, there you know the the fund and from what I have been told about the fundraising within the the Biden and the DNC like. They are almost hitting all cylinders, and they need to be, right, like in order to compete with what Trump is putting together. Well, and if we're going to expand the playing field, my point is, if we're, and if we're going right. to expand the playing field, we have to do, we have to do better. And, yes, they're, they're hitting all cylinders, but we've, we've got to raise – because what, 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 what a lot of people who are not in, sort of in our profession miss is 
is, okay, why aren't you people sort of more competitive in Texas or why aren't you spending money in Texas or Georgia? Because Texas is a country <laughs> and, and Georgia is a <laughs> right. really expensive state. And I remember in 2000, in 2012, I think it was, you know, uh, we did polling on the Obama campaign in, uh, in Georgia, and I was, and I was a real gung ho for us uh, trying to spend, so us go into Georgia, and and I had polling that showed us fairly competitive in Georgia, and the problem was when you run the numbers, when you run the math, when you run what it takes to put a state like Georgia in play, the question goes, okay, so which of the battleground states are we going to leave? in order to put a expensive state like Georgia in play? And is it worth the, and what's the cost benefit analysis of pulling out of one of these battleground states to try to put Georgia in play? So money is really important in this and the ability to sort of expand the electorate and put more places in play. Right, right. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to get your, uh, just, you know, the, the, your thoughts on the, um, the 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 tug of war that takes place within our party uh, between the folks who say, you know, we just need to we need to focus our resources on turning out the base and and progressive voters and really um, and grow our support there versus the the other part of the party who is well, no, we need to focus it on um, uh, getting you know, those Obama-Trump voters who uh, tend to be white um, uh, back into our column. Um, my question is, why can't the party do both? Um, and, you know, like, I don't, I don't really see why you can't do both. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, on that, you know, sort of never-ending argument that takes place within the progressive party. Let me, let me, let me qualify before I, before I answer. Let me, let me, let me level set on that on this conversation. This mythical Trump Obama voter has been greatly exaggerated and been blown out of proportion. Has been blown out of proportion to benefit some some people. I think strategically. Um, were there Trump uh, Obama supporters? Yes, certainly are. There crossover every, every time. But were there Romney Hillary voters as well? Absolutely, there were. And if, because if in fact, if if Trump had 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 won over the, the Romney votes, and in fact taken a large swath of, of 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 Obama voters, he would have gotten more than freaking forty six percent of the electorate, right? And he would have come close to a, probably a majority in Michigan and and in Pennsylvania, but he didn't. His margin his margin was 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 maybe a point or so different than what Mitt Romney's was. So I think there's been entirely too much conversation about this about this damn Trump Obama voter and not enough conversation about the the couple of million Obama voters who sat out the process in 2016 and you know what those voters disproportionately look like they disproportionately look like you and I there's not been enough conversation about six or seven percent of of millennials protesting their vote, voting third party who, 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 in, who in 2008, 2012 broke for, for Obama. So why the hell is it that we're going to spend so much time talking about a, and you know what this Trump voter looks like? Why are we spend all of our time and energy and resources chasing a Trump voter 
when we when the when we have a majority of of the electorate not supporting Trump? How about we spend that time and effort chasing that the very diverse and that younger cohort of voters who are who we know aren't supporting Trump, but aren't necessarily in love with us either? I would argue they're a lower hanging fruit on a strategic, you know, from a targeting standpoint than a freaking Trump voter. So so I right. question so I question the thinking behind why put so much energy and resources in chasing this 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 Trump voter, which is an older non college white voter. And I think I will I will connect the dots back to our earlier conversation about about bias within the progressive community and about who's empowered within the progressive community. And certainly for me some of that conversation is, well, if if we are in fact disproportionately spending resources and efforts on on chasing younger voters and voters of color, we have to certainly empower more people who are younger and voters of color. We have to expand this strategic table and this brain trust at the top of these organizations. I think I think they are connected in some way. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. And you, you and I know we've been in, in enough meetings uh, uh, where, you know, it's always referred to, you know, the, 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 the way that the, you know, the typically these campaigns play out um, is that there's millions of dollars spent on persuasion. Uh, persuasion is generally targeted towards white voters um, over the course of a 10 to 12 week period uh, on television. You do some radio as well, but it's primarily television based um, and poll, you know, and you um, don't traditionally, Typically, traditionally, you don't end up spending a lot on paid media targeting uh, what is referred to as the base vote, which is code word for black voters, until three, maybe three weeks before the election, right? And it's typically, you know, primarily put uh, behind voter contact calling, but primarily canvassing, maybe doing some radio, uh, maybe doing some robocalls. Right. It ends up being a small pittance compared to what is used to uh, persuade uh, white uh, white swing voters. What I have been saying and what I believe is that both of them are persuasion voters. You're trying to persuade them to do the, the white swing voter. You may be persuading them from voting for the Republican, but for. The younger voter for the for the black voter, you know, you're persuading them to vote versus not voting. And so, you know, look, I believe you have to be able to do both. Um, but I do think campaigns need to be thinking a little bit more strategically about how they allocate their resources in this day and age. Because to your point, it's like, do you would you rather have the would you rather be in the uh, the the would you rather be trying to persuade someone to to vote for you and not against or not vote versus vote for you versus someone else who's on the other side. Like the argument to me, and I'm not a, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not a pollster, but it seems to me it would be an, a little bit getting someone motivated to, to turn out and vote. That is, um, that's an easier argument than trying to get someone who is actually weighing voting for jo- Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Right. Like that 
to me, it's like, I don't even get that, right? But that's how it all works. That's how, I mean, I might, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's like, the, that's how it works on campaigns. Like, and when things and, don't make sense that way, you have to ask, you have to ask, well, why is it happening being that, that it doesn't, that it, that, that it, that it doesn't make sense? And you connect the dots right back to our, our broader conversation here is, whose vote do you value most? You know, black votes matter. Latino votes matter. Whose vote are you valuing most? Because if you connect the dots on everything that you just laid out there, it makes absolutely no sense for us to spend vast disproportionately, vastly disproportionately amounts of, of resources chasing this mythical swing voter as opposed to, again, Barack Obama won back-to-back -back majorities while only garnering what we what 39 38 percent of the white vote in, in 2012 uh there you know there is a broad majority coalition that is that is made up of white voters black voters and brown voters why are we spending so much damn time chasing a trump voter whose vote do you value and i think that's where we're going to leave things um on, on that upbeat note, um, you think there's going to be an NFL season? An you think there's going to be an NFL season? You think they're going to play this year? I mean, I think they will, but I know, I know, I know. It's too much money. I know, I know. I know. Hey, you, you egghead intellectuals with all your science charts and, you know, your linear way of thinking. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just like it's all about the green. It's always about the money. <laughs> right. Regular middle of It's just the simplest way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah, there's going to be an NFL season. Hell yeah, there's going to be a, a, a baseball season. <laughs> um, well, I look forward to uh, our next fantasy football league. Um, I got to figure. I got to figure out who I'm going to. I wish I could draft uh, uh, the Redskins Chase Young number one, but I don't think he's going to score any points on defense. But anyway, um, Cornell Belcher, brilliant corners, um, fantastic pollster good friend uh this has been a great conversation my friend thank you so much for coming on the electables really appreciate it uh and best of luck with everything stay safe stay healthy um and take care of yourself thanks for having me man i really appreciate everything you do stay safe peace all right boss take care man this is doug thornell and this has been another episode of the electables podcast thank you for joining me and catch you next time be well and be safe.